are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Mark, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Hey, I'm Mark Lichtenfeld. I'm the Chief Income Strategist with the Oxford Club and the author of Get Rich with Dividends. Excellent. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Oxford Club and investment you for anyone that's um, listening? Sure. So the Oxford Club is a private organization of, uh, of people who uh, would tend to grow and protect their wealth. And we have members all over the world, um, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of doctors, but uh, you know, a lot of, of everyday people going to nine to five jobs and uh, who are really committed to uh, to growing their wealth, to trying to protect what they have and, and, and either enjoy a better lifestyle, safer retirement, or uh, or have something to leave for the kids or grandkids. Uh, but everybody kind of shares that, that common common goal and common mindset. And Investment U is is the education arm of the Oxford Club. So it's a investmentu.com is a free website uh, that has information on a very wide range of topics, uh, investing, uh, mostly investing topics, but you'll also find things on taxes, pretty much any, almost anything to do with personal finance you'll find on investment you. That's great. So Mark, let's start off with the most important question that the listeners have right now. So previously you were a ring announcer or you're still a ring announcer right now. On one side of the ring, you have Manny Pacquiao. On the other side of the ring, you have a gentleman named Floyd Mayweather. So on May 2nd, Who's going to win that fight, and who will you be announcing as the winner? Well, unfortunately, I won't be announcing anybody because I, I didn't get that job. But uh, that would be a dream, a dream come true. I've, I've done a lot of fights on HBO and Showtime, but that one is, is you know, as big as it, as it possibly gets. It's going to be the biggest fight of all time, at least from a uh, revenue standpoint. As far as who wins, I mean, I, I have to lean towards Mayweather. He's the greatest I've ever seen in my lifetime, and, and I include. You know, greats like Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler and uh, you know, lots of other great fighters. Mayweather is, is the best I've ever seen. That being said, I'm starting to read reports that he has uh, some some slight injuries to his hands, and he's had hand problems in the past. And if this fight is close, I would not be shocked to see Pacquiao get the decision for, for one main reason, and that would be a rematch. Uh, there is no rematch clause in either contract in, in the contract, meaning that uh, very often in a fight, if, if the the underdog wins, there's a clause in the contract saying they have to fight again. There there is no clause in, in this contract. So if uh, if Pacquiao were to win, chances are they would do it again. So um, I I'm leaning towards Mayweather, but I would not be shocked if Pacquiao gets a decision. So there's no rematch clause. Is that the case? I thought there there was. No, there's no rematch clause, which is kind of unusual for for a fight of this caliber. Right, but right. I guess it was so difficult to get them <laughs> to agree on one fight. Uh, I would imagine getting them to agree on two would be next to impossible. Wow, I, I heard um, the very same view from Evander Holyfield. He basically has indicated that it makes a lot of business sense, and since this is a business or investing related podcast, that. If Pacquiao were to win, that that would generate even more revenues for Mayweather's final fight, which would be the rematch. 
Exactly. And and it would be a way for him to go out. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think he would prefer, uh, you know, to win this fight, maybe have one more and, and go out undefeated. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, if, if he did lose the fight um, to come back and, and avenge his only loss and, and get another nine-figure payday, <laughs> would not be the uh, bad way to end a career. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was that was a, a fun little question I wanted to ask you based on your your ring announcing experience. Recently, also just switching topics is that you were at an airport in Hawaii and you were thinking about cybersecurity. What's your outlook for the sector, and what do you th- see in terms of the government helping some of these companies related to cybersecurity generate revenues? I just spoke to a gentleman named Shane Harris, which wrote a book called um, At War, and he also is very big on various different components of cybersecurity and NSA. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be, you know, one of the, the most important sectors for decades going forward. I, I think it's absolutely critical uh, I mean, you know, think about what we're afraid of these days. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm not so afraid of Russia, you know, dropping a, a nuclear warhead on, uh, you know, on New York or, or on my city. Uh, I'm more afraid of uh, Russia or, or Chinese hackers, uh, you know, bringing down the electrical grid with a few keystrokes. And uh, you know, th- that I think is is really where the big threats are going to be. I mean, we, we could certainly have uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, you know, God forbid, hopefully it never happened. But we, we could certainly have those kinds of things in the future. But I think massive damage on, you know, on a very large scale will come through cyberspace. Um, so I, I do think it's, it's an absolutely critical area. Uh, I think the government will be spending quite a bit. But I also think private business will be spending a tremendous amount. I mean, it seems almost every week you hear of a major company whose data got, uh, got breached. You know, all the major retailers, all the major banks. I mean, I don't remember the statistics, but I think it's, you know, the, the large banks get tens of thousands of attempts to uh, to get broken into on a daily basis. And, and you know, most of them are, are amateurs who aren't going to be able to do very much. But, uh, you know, they have to constantly be not just keeping their guard up, but improving, spending money on, on personnel and software so I think, uh, you know, I mean, I wish my son was interested in coding because I think anybody who's interested in going into this space will never be without a job. Uh, I think it's going to be absolutely huge for the next uh, several years or several decades. Do you have any, like, investment ideas related to cybersecurity? Um, I haven't I haven't specifically looked into any of the companies. You know, all the, all the, I think all the big ones, uh, you know, to be to be kind of general, I think all the big ones are going to do very well. There's, you know, there's plenty of pie to go around for everybody. Uh, so I'm not so worried about, uh, you know, who's getting what market share. You know, the, the Palo Alto, uh, Palo Alto networks. Networks, yeah. Uh, you know, all all the big companies I think are going to do extremely well going forward. One of the interesting things that the the author of At War discussed about was that. You know, for some of the bigger companies, the government revenues might come in, but they would be still very minuscule for relative to the rest of the the revenues of some of these companies. Like, you know, if if Google participates with the NSA and that that helps them in any shape or form, it would just be a very minute uh, speck within the the overall revenue of of say, for example, like a company like Google. 
Yeah, um, yeah, sure. I, I, I don't disagree with that. And, you know, kind of like I was saying with, with the, the bank example, I mean, you know, how much money do you think J.P. Morgan uh, and Goldman Sachs spend on cybersecurity right. on a yearly basis? But yeah. I don't know if they... I don't think they break that out in their 10Ks, but I would imagine that's a very large number. It is only going to continue to get larger. Um, you know, so you've got everything from, from J.D. Morgan to Targets to American Express. I mean, you know, every major company. Uh, for my company, too, we're, we're constantly um, getting, uh, you know, uh, attempts on, on our databases, and we have to do uh, everything in our power, and we do. You know, we spend a lot of money and resources on making sure that that doesn't happen. And we're, you know, we're a smaller company. You can only imagine what, what the giant banks and financial institutions are doing. That's that's excellent. And related to another topic, which is very interesting, because right now I'm currently at Houston, you discussed about the potential recovery of the price of crude oil back to $100 a barrel by 2016. What are some of the indicators you're seeing? Well, and the reason I... I went out with that forecast, and it's not that I'm an energy expert by any means, but, you know, I do uh, I, I do feel like I know something about market behavior, and mm. the way that, that energy prices crash, and it was a crash, you know, it, it was very, I think, typical of, of a crash in a lot of ways. You know, when, when you have a bear market, that's typically a slow bleed, and, you know, death by a thousand cuts and, and all that, and, and it, it's, you know, very painful and slow, but when, when things crash, they very often come back. Uh, you know, we, we've certainly seen it, whether whether you're talking about individual stocks or the, or the whole market or a commodity. Um, you know, not always, but but very often. Uh, and then in particular with energy, I mean, there are so many potential black swans out there. So, you know, yes, supply is, is much stronger than demand right now, and that's why prices came down so low. But it wasn't it wasn't a, a shock. You know, when, when oil was at $100, we knew that there was still plenty of supply. It wasn't like all of a sudden, you know, Chevron found uh, twice as much oil as they ever knew, you know, <laughs> that they had in the ground. The information was out there just for whatever reason, the market finally acknowledged it or, or however you want to put it. So it, it, there wasn't a lot of new information that led to this crash in oil prices. And then with all these potential black swans, whether it's, something that happens in the Middle East or, or what have you, I, I just think that within the next 18 months, there's a very likely chance that we do see oil prices recover and, and, and make it back to 100. Now, whether they'll stay at 100 again, you know, I, I don't know, but I would not be surprised at all if they rebound hard at some point, uh, and then maybe they settle, uh, you know, pick a number, 60, 80, I, you know, I don't know what that number is, but I, I would not be surprised at all. Uh, and, and I do expect it to, to hit 100 before the end of 2016. Many people, Mark, um, also have very similar thoughts about this. As, as of early as um, a few weeks ago, I've even had people ask me, what, what is the, the best way to get exposure if you genuinely believe in this recovery? You know, some people discuss about the, the USO ETF, for example, which I don't necessarily think would be the, the optimal way to, to get exposure on this potential recovery. What are your thoughts in, in instruments or tools that people or products people can invest in to capture this potential recovery? Well, I mean, it, it, it depends on, on your goals. If you're a short-term trader uh, or an intermediate-term trader and, and you you can, you know, kind of swing for the fences, you could certainly buy some call options on uh, on some very beaten-up companies. Um, 
you know, I, I wrote a book about dividends. I, I believe very strongly in buying quality companies that pay uh, rising dividends. So I like I like some of the big, you know, the, the giant oil companies. And I have Chevron as as an active recommendation right now. I mean, they're a company that should be able to weather the storm. You know, with oil prices low, uh, they you know as they uh, as they say, not that first rodeo. They, you know, their executives have been through boom and bust cycles before. So I'm I'm not too worried about. Uh, about them surviving or, or even having to cut the dividend at all if, if prices stay low. But if they go higher, then, you know, you're buying a great company at, uh, at a discount, uh, with getting a great dividend while you're, you're getting paid to, to wait it out. Uh, so that's kind of the way I like to play it. And, you know, over the long term, I think the, the big oil companies are going to do just fine. What's interesting is you just mentioned to me about 18 months from now. What's interesting about that is it sounds coincidental that the presidential election would be around that same time. Yeah, exactly. November, um, yeah, November 2016. My, that date, my, you know, the end of 2016 was, it's not that I have, uh, crunched some numbers and said, okay, by December 2016, it was kind of a nice, convenient, you know, target in the future when, when I made that prediction that, you know, it was over a year away, but but not so far away that uh, you know it, it was like drawing a dart and saying, okay, by 2020, because yeah, you know, anything could happen by then. But kind of a nice intermediate term line. So I, I didn't, I, I wasn't even considering the 2016 election. But yeah. you're right, uh, you know, that could certainly uh, change things in a lot of different markets. Yeah, on the on the previous election, I I had just you know looking into some of the companies that were heavily involved with um, various different programs that Obama had implemented. For example, most of the auto companies did very well running up to the election. I almost looked at it like an event trade, um, despite the, the fundamentals of the company. Around that time, there's going to be certain companies or, or sectors that are going to be heavily protected as, as the, you know, uh, whatever the incumbent party was is trying to put some halo effect over those sectors. But um, it'd be interesting right. to see oil reach that, that um, you know, at least near a $100 barrel around that time, too, because I'm sure that would be an interesting issue that would be covered by, you know, the press at the same time. And, and I'm sure a lot of potential presidential nominees would be asked about that and what are the programs to 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 help um in terms of uh oil and gasoline prices so just a coincidence that that i just noticed so mark you you discussed about the 10 11 12 system in your book get rich with dividends can you tell us a little bit about that sure then that's the foundation for my book and the uh, oxford income letter um, and by foundation, I mean it's it's the methodology, not that it's a <laughs> nonprofit. So what it is, it's it's uh, it's a strategy for achieving either 11% yield if you are collecting income today, or if you're reinvesting dividends uh, for averaging 12% annual returns uh, over a 10-year period. And so basically, what we're doing is we're looking for companies that have a high enough starting yield. But very importantly, that have high enough annual dividend growth. And so you kind of combine those two numbers and, and make other assumptions too as far as the performance of, of the stock market. And, you, you know, it, it, it's a mathematical formula. So if a stock, uh, let's say, has 
somebody just asked me this uh, today about utilities. Well, how come I don't recommend any utilities? And it's because there's not enough dividend growth. So you could have a company with a nice, you know, a nice strong dividend yield, like a Duke Energy that has over a 4% yield, but the dividend growth is, is very low. It's, it's about 5%. And actually, a lot of utilities have even lower dividend growth. So in order to achieve this 11% yield in 10 years or 12% uh, average annual total return, you need a, a combination of high enough uh, dividend growth and high enough starting yield. And, and the other important part of this whole thing is that we are looking for companies that have a track record of raising the dividend every year. That's key. Um, you know, I'm not interested in companies that have, have cut a few times, even if they have a very high dividend, but if they, if they have a tendency to cut or if the dividend doesn't look stable to me, or even if they just kept it flat, I, I want that dividend growth because the, the key part of this strategy and one of the goals is to be able to increase buying power uh, after inflation is taken into account. And so, you know, inflation is very low right now. People aren't talking about it too much. But at some point, inflation is going to become important and meaningful again. And then even if we just get back to you know, the historical average, which is about uh, three, just a little over three percent, which is, is not that high, but at three percent, it does start to eat into your buying power every year. And, and you know, you, you compound that over ten years, and it, and it does become quite meaningful. So we want to have that growth uh, that after taxes, after inflation, is increasing your buying power. Uh, especially for those people who are in retirement, uh, you know, you don't want to just uh, tread water. You want to make sure you have uh, a little bit extra because life gets expensive. Does the system take into account uh, share buybacks as well, aside from just dividends? No, it doesn't. Uh, basically, my my assumption, the assumption that I use for the stocks is that it's just going to, they're going to perform as well as the market. And I'm, I'm simply using the average market return over the last 50 years has been about 7.8 percent so because basically what I'm what I'm trying to do is create a, a portfolio of stocks and I'm I'm going to assume that I did not pick the greatest stocks in the world the, the ones that are going to you know outperform the, the market and, and go gangbusters I'm just going to pick the average stock but that has these components of yield and dividend growth and combined as long as it performs along with the averages and just Simply, you know, rises uh, along with the the S and P 500 um, according to the historical averages. Uh, you're going to get this uh, what actually turns out to be significant outperformance. Um, so certainly buybacks, and, and if you do pick, you know, great companies that have great earnings and cash flow, uh, you could outperform the market for sure. But I'm I'm trying to make it as simple as possible for the average investor who who may not uh, either have the skills or uh, or the desire to really you know, dig into a company's financials and, and try to figure out is, is this company the best company out there? It's more of is this a quality company that has a history of dividend growth that should be able to continue that to grow that dividend in the future has a high enough starting yield, and it's really designed to make it as easy as possible for the individual investor. What I like to do, Mark, and I don't know if this is too complicated for the, you know the readers of your your letter is sometimes even on a position like that or even from a company that's not generating dividends um, what are your thoughts about selling near dated and even like further down the line long dated calls or puts around a particular position to generate some kind of like synthetic yield to the the stock position 
Yeah, I'm a, a big fan of that strategy. Uh, and we actually do that in a, a product I have called the Dividend Multiplier. Um, the, I get the one caveat I would say is I use that strategy more for short and intermediate term income. I don't do that on the longer term positions. And, and the positions that I have in the Oxford Income Letter and that I talk about in the book, those are really designed to hold for 10, 20, 30 years if possible. And especially if you're reinvesting the dividend, because then we really want to let compounding work its magic uh, in those later years. So by selling a covered call, you run the risk of uh, having the stock called away from you. And yet, yet you can always buy back the call if you want to, sure you hang up to the stock. But for, for those positions, I really kind of want to come as close as possible to setting and forgetting it. I don't think you can ever truly forget those stocks. But... Uh, you know, I do want to to really have a, a long term perspective. For the put selling, uh, I think what, what could be a really effective strategy is selling some uh, out of the money puts on stocks that you do want to own for ten, twenty, thirty years, uh, and then if you if you get them uh, at the price you want, and hopefully you know they have a great dividend, and you get that an even better dividend yield than you could have today because it dropped ten percent, then that, that's a great way of, of picking up some some great stocks. So. You know, there might be some stocks that say you're following my system, but the numbers didn't quite work out. Well, you could, you know, maybe crunch the numbers and say, okay, well, if I can get the stock at a at a four percent yield instead of you know three point eight percent where it is today, then it would work. So maybe I'll sell a put, and uh, and if I if I get you know if I get the stock put to me, great. Then I have the stock that I want at the price I want. And if not, then I just collect the income and and move on to the the, the next trade. Philosophically, because of quantitative easing, overall, uh, the, the option premiums aren't that rich as they were before. So do you think it's, it's worthwhile in the event that, you know, a potential black swan can always happen by either selling calls or, or puts um, around some of these positions? Um, yeah, I still think it's worthwhile. I mean, there's still, there's still money to be made in the right position. I mean, you know, on a, if you're selling a covered call, particularly on a on a dividend stock, I mean you can make uh you know four percent in four to six, maybe eight weeks, depending on on the stock and, and the volatility. Uh now four percent might not sound like a lot, but if you can do that in four, six or eight weeks and repeat that, and that, that's one of the things we try to do in dividend multiplier, uh, you know, that adds up over time. Uh and then if you know, if, vol- if your experience in doing this a lot if volatility does increase then the numbers can get even bigger. But, you know, you just have to be able to, to handle the risk of either uh, if you're selling the puts of, of being put the stock uh, and buying the stock if you need to, or if you're selling covered calls, you know, you need to be able to kind of deal with the emotions of having your call, uh, having your, your stock called away. And, and that's one thing, you know, sometimes people don't like that. They buy a stock or they like it, and they sell the covered call, and then the stock gets called away and they're, they're upset. Meanwhile, they if you sold it say slightly out of the money, you made a little bit of a profit. Hopefully, collected a dividend and you collected some premium. So it's, it's not the end of the world, but you just kind of have to you have to know what the risks are, what the potential end game is, uh, and and be ready to to have the options exercised before you enter those trades. But that's a long way of answering your question. But yeah, I, I do think it's worth it. So Mark, we, we've covered um, cybersecurity, 
oil prices, this your 10, 11, 12 system. What other themes or, or ideas right now are you covering that you could share to the listeners? Well, totally on the other end of the spectrum of, you know, kind of conservative dividend stocks uh, is, is biotech. I, I, I'm a big fan of the biotech sector. I think it's, you know, like cybersecurity, it's going to be a sector that is going to do well for years and years to come. There's so much innovation. There's so much demand for uh, not only the products that are out there now, but for new products. So the, I mean, the sector's had a, a heck of a run over the last couple of years. It's, you know, some people are calling it a bubble. I, uh, I, I don't, I don't like that word. I don't think it's accurate, but it certainly has had a nice run, and you kind of need to be aware of that and that it, it could end at any time. Um, that being said, though, I think the long-term prospects are tremendous. The the big blue chip biotech, the Amgen, the Biogen, the Gilead, are going to be tomorrow's Pfizer's and Merck's and Bristol Myers and. I uh, would not be surprised for them to become very significant dividend payers over the long term. But um, because, I mean, they generate so much cash right now. You know, these are, are big, profitable companies, not the small speculative names that you often think of with biotech. Uh, but with, with these small speculative names, I mean, kind of the, the fun part about that is, you know, those are the stocks that you hear about, you know, tripling in, in six months and really can go gangbusters. So, you know, if you have risk capital and you can afford to swing for the fences, uh, you know, to me, that's the sector you do it in because, you know, one positive clinical trial set of data and, you know, you see these stocks can go 50%, they can double in a day. We've seen some, some crazy premiums on, on mergers and acquisitions. So if you can handle significant risk, and the risk is significant in these smaller names, um, the returns can be absolutely I think unlike anywhere else you'll find in the market. Yeah. Like you even said, some, with some of these large caps, if, for example, in my hedge fund, we have a position in, in Gilead, and it's it's fantastic. It's relatively higher beta than some of the more conservative positions that I have, but that high beta works somewhat in your favor. I'm a big you know fan of the rule that when when in high volatility environments, the, the best position to take is actually going long. And, um, you know, there are days when your average price, for example, it will slightly sink below your average price, but there are many instances where it just quickly recovers as, as, you know, quantitative easing is still playing a factor the world over and people are still positive on equities until that changes, then it's hard to get out of the biotech space and their forward earning projections are still very cheap relative to the rest of the market. Yeah, and then I think that's that's an excellent point. I think that's kind of what's missing from this whole biotech and is in a bubble conversation. And when people are talking about that, the fact that it's in a, a bubble or that it's uh, overvalued, I, in a lot of cases they're talking about the smaller names. They're not talking about these big blue chip companies like like Gilead, you know, that are just crank out their earnings and the cash flow year after year. I mean, they've been doing this a long time. They've got lots of products. They have you know, deep pipelines, uh, experience management. Um, you know, like I said, you know, I think they, they are very comparable to the big pharmas, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 20 years ago. I, I think these are going to be, you know, really the, the, the big giant healthcare companies of tomorrow. Get in today at a, at a, at a not unreasonable valuation on, on the bigger names. Well, thank you, Mark, for, for this conversation. Let's try to do that sometime in the not too distant future again. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.